0: If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel. There this morning we resume our study. As you know, we took a brief hiatus from that over the Advent season to consider uh, the prologue of John, and we looked at John 1, 1 to 18, and uh, before that we had been moving our way through Daniel, and today we pick up on that. And so, uh, last we were in Daniel, we had finished up chapter 10, and as I told you when we were there, chapter 10 begins what is the final uh, large vision that is recorded in this, in this book. And so, we had chapter 10 where we see the, the vision of the man, and we kind of discussed him being a reflection of God, and then we get it, we're getting into what is about to be a long explanation of what's going to happen in history. And, of course, this leads to one of the primary debates with regard to Daniel 11 and how we understand it. So, we're going to have kind of more of a a hermeneutical that is interpretive, interpretation, the study of interpretation, is the hermeneutic of how you understand Daniel 11 is very, very important. And so, it is a very difficult chapter of Scripture uh, for this reason. Daniel 10 is kind of building up to this, this angel God giving Daniel this revelation of what's going to be happening In human history. Remember, the children of Israel were at the point where they have been sent home or they can go home now from the exile, and God is revealing to Daniel what is going to be happening in human history from that point on. And you're going to hear me say this again, but we're kind of being reminded that ultimately the exile didn't do what it was designed to do. The hearts of Israel did not change. They remained hard in exile, and when they go home, their hearts are hard. And so What's happening now is the unfolding of human history, it is just one long time of being in the crucible, of the people of God still living under the pain and threat of persecution, the people of God still living under the uh, uh, threat and pain of being conquered and taken over, and they will. And so what we're being told here, the larger theme that we have to be reminded of when it comes to books like this, especially in Daniel, this Old Testament prophecy, is that what is the hope of God's people? Is the hope of God's people not experiencing pain or not being persecuted or or having our own promised land where nothing bad ever happens? No, that is not our hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Our hope is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, intervening into our world and saying, you are mine. That does not mean painlessness. That does not mean that there is no hardship. What it means is that in the pain, in the hardship, we have the covenant-keeping God who is walking with us and taking us to the place where we ultimately need to go. And so this morning, we're going to begin to look as at Daniel 11 and see how this unfolds. And see how this will unfold in human history. So without further delay, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible inerrant Word. Daniel 11, chapter 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece." Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall reign with great dominion, and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of the heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he... Stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, who, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods, their metal images, and their precious precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing and understanding. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this Word. It is complex. It's difficult. There's no way around it. Thank You for the reality that You have given Scripture to teach and train in righteousness, and that is no less true here. God, give us minds to understand, eyes to see, and ears to hear what You would say to us from Your Word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you've heard the cliché, nothing lasts forever. I've heard that saying many times, and It's a cliche. It's a saying because it's true. Nothing lasts forever. We live in a world that dies, where things die, people die, plants die, buildings crumble. Nothing, not one thing will last forever other than the people of God who will be renewed at the coming of Christ. God is the only eternal thing. Everything else in creation dies. Everything else becomes obsolete. It wears out all things come and go. So much of life is just about living in a moment where things are coming and going and watching things come and watching things go and, and dealing with that. We see people in history and regimes in history or nations that just seem so powerful, so so unconquerable, and yet they get overpowered, they get conquered, they die out. We see all these things. We see influential ideas, philosophical ideas that come on the scene and are so powerful in a moment and then are forgotten. Because things come and go. Because things die out. Things wear out. People die. People wear out. This is the way the world is. And it's true. All this is true for one primary reason. One primary reason. Because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and brought destruction to the world. The world was alive. The world was teeming with life. The world was a place of life. But when sin came in through Adam and Eve, they ushered in death in themselves, death in the world, and all sorts of other kinds of death philosophically that we deal with, just that complete separation. And you've heard me say it before, it's one reason that death, you know, people say that death is such a natural part of life, and it's not. It's really not. We were created body and soul together by the Creator, and to have that soul detached from that body as it awaits renewal is we cry out, this is not supposed to be this way. We feel the pain of the separation because we live in a world where separation and pain and death are a reality and all because of sin having come into the world. But what else did Adam and Eve's action do? It guaranteed, it guaranteed that God himself would have to intervene into the human story because we broke it beyond human repair. That's what sin does. That's how powerful sin is. And so by their act of disobedience, they guaranteed that God Himself would have to intervene into the story of humanity to make it right. And that's what we see in the gospel. That when God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God, it had to be that way because we were so profoundly broken by sin. So this is the beauty, the pain of our story, and the beauty of our story. The pain is the sin, the brokenness, the death, and all the things that we endure. The beauty is that Christ is with His people. And in fact, if we believe what Paul says in Ephesians, we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenlies, our righteousness and salvation is so sure. So does God's intervention relieve us from all pain? No, but it does give us hope, the thing that we need. I will not lie to you, Daniel 11 is tough sledding. It is tough sledding from a Hebrew perspective It's just tough sledding from all different sorts of angles because a lot of information is being passed when from verse to verse that covers a lot of history, and so there's the big, the biggest debate about Daniel 11 is this: is Daniel 11 prophecy, or is Daniel 11 history? People who take the historical approach, what the reason is. It is so highly accurate in how he understood human history as it was going to develop in the ancient world that there is no possible way that he could have written this before it happened. No way. That's the historical approach. So they date the book of Daniel much later than it was actually written to account for the fact that what Daniel or the writer of Daniel here is doing is just simply recording history. He's just writing down history as he sees it unfolding with a little bit of hyperbole that's the historical approach. The prophetic approach says, no, Daniel was written at the early date that we discussed when we first started this book, that God has sent a messenger from the heavenly realms to tell Daniel what is going to happen in human history so Daniel can record it to prepare the people. And we reason, those of us who hold that view, is simply this. If God can save people out of a fiery furnace, if God can shut the, mouth of lion, the mouths of lions, if God can create the world ex nihilo from nothing, then God can give Daniel a message about what will unfold in human history. And so we need, when we read Daniel 11, we need to understand that it is prophecy. And when we see the highly accurate nature of Daniel 11 and how he saw history unfold, it is remarkable from a human standpoint to think that God gave this man this message and how accurate it is. But if we understand the nature of God as He is, it is, seems fairly consistent with His own power and character that the Creator of the world, the being who is outside of time, the being who oversees the flight path of a sparrow or knows the very hairs on your head, can accurately sum up what will happen in human history. And so, this should inspire Daniel 11, after we get through the complex language, a great deal of faith in us that God is laying out for Daniel, this is going to happen in the world, this is going to affect you, but you need to understand one primary thing, I'm in control of it. I'm telling you it's happening beforehand, so you'll know that I control it. And so, I'll confess to you freely on the front end, Daniel 11, the whole chapter it reads like a historical timeline. That's really what it does. When my kids were younger, we we homeschooled, and we would create these timelines of history uh, for us to learn dates and whatnot. That's exactly how Daniel 11 primarily reads, just event after event after event after event after event. Because he's talking in mysterious language, but these each kind of, you can see how they unfold in history, but what is the overarching? If we're going to take something from Daniel 11, not only this first paragraph, but just the whole chapter as, we'll, as it'll unfold, what we need to remember is we live in a world that does not love God, that does not love God's people, and is, it is kind of caving in on itself through conflict and war. You know, when we have often heard me say we live in a culture of death, that is true. We do. But I don't know how different it's been in the previous cultures. If we go all the way back, the culture of death was brought into the world when Adam and Eve sinned. And then Genesis 4, what's the very first thing we see is a murder. And then it just continues, the wickedness. And so when we look at the brokenness of the world, we live in a world of death, a world where death wants to reign and does reign. And so the message that God has bringing to Daniel is death is all around you. You're going to experience death. You yourself are going to die. Your kinsmen are going to die but that's not your worst enemy. The Greeks or the Persians or the Romans and whomever else are not your worst enemy. Our worst enemy is godlessness or being aloof, indifferent to God. And so we live in a world that wants to work that into our hearts and, beloved, the best thing that we can do to fight it is to stand on gospel principles and continue Continue to be a voice of truth crying out in the wilderness. That's what God would have us do. And so he's telling Daniel, despite the hardships you're going to see around you, remain firm. Let nothing move you. Remain firm. So when we think of Daniel 11, it reminds us of a few things. It reminds us that we need a loving relationship with Yahweh, with God, with Jesus Christ. It reminds us that history is not just a record of events but it paints a picture of God's sovereign control over all things as he's bringing all things into subjection to Jesus who will consummate a new kingdom. Beloved, it won't always be this way. We might not live to see it. We may pass from this earth and go be with Christ and the kingdom will come much later, but the way that it is now, our, our, the message that we have from Scriptures, the way that it is right now, it won't always be this way because the goodness of God is reigning and coming more and more and more for the hearts of people and the world. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see from these nine verses, and it's simply this, that history reveals the mystery of God's works in the world. That history reveals the mystery of God's works in the world. Now, I'm using the word reveal and the word mystery there very intentionally this morning, because mystery from a biblical standpoint means the... the, information that God had, the revelation of God that he reveals at the proper time. So when you think about mystery from the scriptural standpoint, it's information that only God himself can and does eventually reveal. That's why Paul speaks of the gospel as the mystery of the gospel, the message of Christ revealed at the proper time by God himself, God in the flesh. And so when we look at history, it does reveal the mystery of God's works in the world. What Daniel is doing here is something that he's already done before, really, in other places. He's really just kind of capturing the slow march of time, of of really just this notion that time marches on. People live. People die. We have experiences. We do one thing. We do another. And so he's kind of capturing something that appears very mundane to us, which is just the slow march of time. But it's not mundane. Time marches on for a purpose, sometimes known to us, sometimes not. God has the purpose. But when we look at this, and we start thinking through it, we look at these successive years, these successive kingdoms that come and go, these years that tick off the calendar, they should remind us of something profoundly important, that God does control human history, that none of this is just happening. It's happening because of a a determined plan, the determined plan of God. And beloved, that has to give us comfort. As I look at Daniel 11, chapter, or verse, chapter 11, verse 1, we, the very first verse, we get this, this note of context that's important for us. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, I'll stop right there for just a second. The note of context is this. The first year of Darius the Mede would have been 539 B.C. Now, the other significant thing that happens in 539 B.C. is that the Jews are told they can go back to their homeland. So the exile, in a sense, is officially over. The Jews can go back home. Now, what I love here, and I want us to get this straight, when we see the, as for me, and then the I stood up, keep in mind, he's not talking about Daniel here. This is not a reference to Daniel. This is still a reference to the angel. Now, why is that important? Why do we want to make that note? Well, for one, because we're seeing, again, that there's a spiritual dimension in the history of God's people. We looked at this a little bit last time before we took our hiatus and looked at spiritual warfare in Ephesians, but we're being reminded of the spiritual dimension that's happening in the context of the people of God. So we know that they've been released to go back home from the exile, and this angel is saying, when that happens, that I am there with Darius, strengthening him and confirming him. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God is intimately involved in that decision, this, this, what we would say a political decision in the world, that God is working behind the scenes to see that the children of Israel are sent back home. But I love that we see that God is intimately involved in the lives of humanity. He sends this creature, He sends this being to Darius to strengthen and confirm Him. That's what He says, to confirm and strengthen Him. What does that tell us about the character of God? That even these pagan kings experience the mercy of God. That God is merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate. Yes, God is working to see the Israelites sent home. And yes, God cares for his creation. He cares for humanity in general. Why? Even pagans are made in the image of God. That's why. Our, his image has been imprinted, has been stamped on humanity. And so we need to see the consistent character of God that He cares for people. That is why we are so big on the sanctity of life, because we are made in the image of God. And so even here, we see God's mercy and care for His people. But I love what the angel immediately says. So he says, I came in the first year of Dariat, I stood uh, up to confirm and strengthen him. And then he says, literally in the Hebrew, and now I will declare to you the truth. And I love how he, how he, and then there is a full stop. And now I will declare to you the truth. What is the truth? Oh, the truth is the reality of the coming kingdoms and how it's going to affect Israel. Right when he says, I will declare to you the truth, we might think, oh, we're about to get this big redemptive statement. And then what does he say? Behold, three more kings shall arise and perjure. He begins laying out what will happen in history. He begins to lay out exactly what Daniel and the people of God can expect. And so there in verse 2, he mentions four Persian kings that will rise, be raised up. Now, there's absolutely nothing in the text itself that gives us any indication who those four kings are. So naming them is somewhat speculative and not really all that essential. I do have four names that most commentators agree it's probably who it's in reference to. But there's also the view that it wasn't meant to be taken literally, that just more kings were going to be raised up in Israel. I mean, in Persian. That could be true. But besides that, there are four that kind of stand out from history. Cyrus being one of them, who would reign from 530 to 522 B.C. And then you'd have good old Smyrdus, who only made it one year with, with a wonderful name, 522 B.C. And then Darius I, who is a memorable Persian king, from 522 to 486 BC, and then probably the most memorable of all, who is Xerxes, who reigned from about 486 to 464 BC. Now, why does that matter? Why, why would he tell Daniel this? Well, A, to show his power and authority over human history, and to say, hey, even when you go home to exile, There are still going to be issues in the land. You're still going to have obstacles. You're still going to have persecutions. You're still going to have fighting. It's not over. Don't think that your going home is the relief that you need. You need something much larger than that. And it accords well that Xerxes be that fourth king because Xerxes is the Persian king who in 480 BC thought that he would conquer Greece. He did invade and he ultimately failed. But look, imagine this now. Daniel will is old at this point and won't live to see most of this. But God is already telling Daniel stuff that's going to happen centuries later. With accuracy, he mentions that a Persian king is going to rise up, he's going to get stirred up against Greece, and he's going to stir up Greece. love, it's powerful to see the God of the detail. But as we think about these kings, you know, Cyrus, Smyrdas, Darius, Xerxes, what is true about all of them? Every one of them dies. They come and they go. They symbolize power for a time, and then they are nothing. There is dust. They are no more. It's just that reminder that they are frail, that all their greatness all their conquering all their riches come to nothing in the end because they die but see what do we what do we learn from this though it's that though they die the lord stands forever the lord is eternal the lord reigns it's not He will reign. It's not that He has reigned. It's like the Lord reigns. That is the refrain of our, our faith, of our worldview, that the Lord reigns. You know, all these kings, they accomplished things. They accomplished feats, things that were remarkable. We'll come to Alexander the Great here in just a minute. And he was remarkable. But they died. And do you know why? You know what the leading cause of death is? Birth. Birth. I'll let that one sink in for a second. (laughs) The leading cause of death is birth. If you are born, you will die. And we have to remember that when we're living in our world, when we're seeing things, when we're things that are so daunting or disheartening, we got to remember there's so much change and transition that though these things come and go, that go these people, though these people come and go, the, the Word of the Lord, the Lord Himself stands forever. He's the one who doesn't die and He's ushering us into a kingdom of eternal life where we will live with Him eternally. And so, humans are frail, and and no matter how powerful they are in a season, they come and they go. But this is not so with God. It's interesting. Verse 2 is trying to give us the sum of about 200 years' worth of history. Persian Empire lasted roughly 200 years. Verse 3 introduces a new character into the scene, though it is a character that we've seen before in the book of Daniel. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of the heavens, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So, what do we say about this? It's kind of more of the same. It's more of the same of what you just read in verse 2. Verses 3 and 4 just say, yep, and then there's another kingdom. Now, I'm convinced, verse 3 is talking about Alexander the Great. He reigned, or he was in power from about 336 to about 323 BC, and he conquered a vast empire. And in fact, when we remarked on him previously, he conquered a vast empire, what took some kings decades to do. He did it in a, in a few short years. He conquered the known world at his time. and He did so with intelligence, with speed, and with a military genius that is unparalleled. And he did it when he was very young. And so he comes on the scene, and guess what? He's the new power du jour, He's the new power we have to worry about. He's the one now who's got all the power. All these, Xerxes is gone. Darius is gone. Cyrus is gone. Artaxerxes, all all these guys are gone. And now here's this new one. And you know what, beloved? It is. I'm not trying to diminish the, the pain and the hardship, but it's just more of the same. It's another one who was raised up and another one who will eventually go. He will die. He couldn't evade death. No one can. We are subject to death. That's why we need the living God to redeem our souls and hearts. Just a little bit more about history, just so you know. Those verses tell us that his posterity won't get his kingdom. Did you know that Alexander Alexander the Great's sons were eventually assassinated, moved out of the picture? His kingdom, it says, will be split to the four winds. Four of his generals took over his empire and split it up and forthed it. And it says they will not have the same authority, and they didn't. And it says their kingdoms will not be as great, and they weren't, not in sheer size and capacity that Alexander the Great had it. So here again, you have the God of the universe laying out specifically exactly what's going to happen in human history. If you think about Alexander the Great, he's been mentioned already in Daniel 7 as the leopard with wings representative of Greece. He's been mentioned in Daniel 8 with the ram and the goat. So we're honing in on a specific period of history. Why? Well, when you look at what this, these four kingdoms being divided out, what that's going to mean for Israel, we'll look at later on. But it's going to have profound implications for Israel as a people. When we think of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, who would come and desecrate the temple and, and put the people of Israel under uh, subjugation, he was part of the Seleucid dynasty, the Seleucid dynasty, was one of the generals. That was Alexander the Greats who got a kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, and some of the other lands in there. It, uh, it all connects. It, it has meaning and purpose. But this is not merely a history lesson. We have to get at the heart of what's going on. I want to proceed or continue. Then, hit, so, then we get this first use of this phrase, king of the south, which will run through the rest of this chapter, king of the south and king of the north. So, in verse 5, he says, then the king of the south shall be strong but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be, shall be a great authority. I want to stop right here. So the king of the south in verse five would have been one of the generals of Alexander the Great, Ptolemy. This would be Ptolemy I. And if you're not a history student, I'm really sorry. But I'm just trying, I'm trying to give you as much information of what's going on here as I can. I'm trying to not just make this a history lesson. King of the south in verse five is Ptolemy I. He ruled from about 323 to 285 B.C., he ruled Egypt, and we know that the king of the north, who were, this first king of the north, is going to be Seleucus I, and he was given Babylon. Now, why bring this up? Because in verse five, something has been prophesied. The king of the south shall be strong. Ptolemy the I was a strong king, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be great, a great authority. So when Seleucus gets Babylon, he 's weak and one of his fellow generals decides to march in and take it, and he does. And where does Seleucus flee to? He flees to Ptolemy in Egypt. And what does he do while he's there? He becomes a prince in Ptolemy's kingdom and begins to fight with armies and becomes very strong. And in about 312 BC, the one who took over Babylon from Seleucus is weakened through the loss of a battle. And Seleucus marches an army back to Babylon and takes it back over and expands his territory and actually becomes stronger and greater than Ptolemy in Egypt. Now, Brad, why? Why bring this up? Because what would happen from this day on is that the king of the south and the king of the north would be in conflict. Who is right in the middle of the king of the south and the king of the north? Israel is. Israel is right in the middle. Who's going to feel the ripple effect when those armies fight? Israel is. Who's going to be leveraged and be sold and bought and sold and bought and sold and bought when these Uh, countries start to bargain? Israel is. Who is going to feel the pinch of slavery when they decide they want to enslave people? Israel is. So we're not just merely getting a history lesson. What is God telling Daniel and the angel? The people need to get ready and gird up their loins because as history unfolds, they are going to be in a critical point where they are constantly bought and sold and enslaved and hurt and killed and persecuted and attacked and minimized and every other thing you can think of. And so, yes, all these dates have meaning. But so we ask ourselves, what is the hope of the people there? They're not going to get out of it, beloved. Just like we're not going to get out of living in this world. If we are born, we live in this world until we die. What is the answer in those moments? Is that we have the hope of God in times of distress. The times of distress are not going to cease. They're not going to stop. They're not going to go away. That doesn't mean we can't live peace-filled, joy-filled, hope-filled lives. Because when Yahweh is reigning and we have Him, we have hope, we have joy, and we have peace. Now, verse 6. And you might assume that when you see king of the south and king of the north through this paragraph, they mean the same person. They don't. They change from verse to verse to verse to verse. In verse 6, After some years they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendance, who, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. What is going on there? The king of the south, in verse 6, is not Ptolemy the first, but is now Ptolemy the second, and we're dealing with the years from about 285 to 246. Now why is that how do we know that? Brad, how can you say that? Because in 250 BC, in 250 BC, Ptolemy II sends his daughter, Bernice, to Antiochus II and says, Antiochus, here's my daughter Bernice have a union, be married to her, y'all produce a son, and then that son will rule and unite both of these kingdoms and will become one mighty kingdom. Antiochus II didn't let the fact that he was already married get in the way. He divorces his wife and receives Bernice, and they do get married, and they do in fact produce a son who would be the king of the Ptolemaic and Seleucid dynasty. He would, be, he would unite these two kingdoms. Well, Antiochus, not being a man who is easily satisfied, decided he no longer had any desires for Bernice, so he divorced her and went back to his first wife and said, honey, I made a huge mistake. And she says, sure, I'll take you back. And she poisons him and kills him. Then she sends assassins to kill Bernice and to kill the son made from that union. So when we see that, but she shall—that is, Bernice—but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So Antiochus, Bernice, her son dies, and in the meantime, her father also dies. So that's what, so. When you see this, you see this unfold, and you look back at what God said would happen, and it is just remarkable that is exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened. And so you see, God is telling Daniel something, that despite all these power grabs, despite all these power grabs and intrigue and conniving and people trying to put themselves in positions, people come, people go, but I stand forever. Here I sit reigning on the throne. Verse 7, and from a branch from her roots, that is the daughter, Bernice, from the branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. So the his there is referring back to Ptolemy II. She had a son prior to this marriage of Antiochus who was uh, creatively named Ptolemy III. And so Ptolemy III then becomes the king of the south in the stead of Ptolemy II. So verses 7 through 9 really kind of are one little cohesive little unit here. Ptolemy Third, from about 246 to 221 B.C., he succeeded Ptolemy Second, And so when you read this, it says, rise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So here's what we know. At this time, Ptolemy III is the king of the south. Seleucus II is the king of the north. They reign roughly around the same time period. And Ptolemy does attack Antioch at this point, which is the capital of the Seleucid dynasty. He attacks it and conquers it and loots it. And he carries all that loot back to Egypt as spoils of war. This happened in history. And so we read here from Daniel that This happens that the king of the south attacks Antioch. He wins. He takes all the spoil back to Egypt. And then some sort of uneasy armistice is agreed on. There's a treaty where they don't attack for a while. And so it ends wars for a time. But then we get this last little note in in verse 9. It says, Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Just this little note that the king of the north eventually does try to do something to the king of the south but ultimately comes back to his own land. Well what do we take away from this? Well from this this little tight little unit humanity seeks power. When there's an opportunity to grab for power, we go for it. We don't have to look very far than our own political spectrum to see that that power is an attractive thing and when we can go for power to retain some sort of edge, to have the juice, so to speak, or to be in control. Humans go for that. And they've done it all throughout human history. See, God created us in the garden to be seekers of Him, to be seekers of sacrificial love, to give of ourselves one to another, but that's exactly what sin distorted. That's the image of God in us or one aspect of the image of God in us, and that's exactly what sin sought to distort. What did Eve want when she took that fruit? Power. You will be like God. What did she already have when she took that fruit? The likeness of God. And so the first sin that reverberates throughout all humanity is seek, it's seeking for power and we see that humans do that again and again and again and again. And so God is telling Daniel, they're going to continue to seek power, they're going to fail. They're going to seek power, they're going to fail. They're going to seek power, they're going to fail. But love, we are called to be seekers of God, to seek His love. Well, when we look in, in the face of history, and we have more yet to come, this was just the beginning. We have but one response, and it's the refrain I've been saying over and over. Our God reigns and controls all history. So, Why the brief history lesson? Well, furthermore, why would the angel tell all this to Daniel, who would not live to see almost all of it? Well, The answer to both those questions is the same. The angel is comforting Daniel with the fact that though these things would get harder, not easier... Harder, not easier, God is in control. You know, when we think about hope, one of the passages of Scripture, hope deferred makes the heart sick, we think about hope, hope gives us peace, hope gives us joy, hope in some sense gives us purpose to live on, joy-filled. Hope has never been in things being easy, never, it has never been that. Yet we live with that mentality so often that if things will just be easier, then it would be better. And easier doesn't equal better. It really doesn't. Because when something's easy, something else will be difficult. And so our hope is not in it being easy. Our hope has never been in avoiding hard situations. If we live to avoid hard situations, that's basic hedonism, just multiply your pleasure, minimize your pain, and your life will be good. And that's not true. That's not true. Hope has never been in those things. Hope is properly placed in God who is with us throughout all those things and events, throughout all the hard situations, throughout all the difficult trials. And so this is the reminder not to be intimidated by kings and kingdoms because they pass away, but our Lord stands forever. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time. This is as we said in the beginning, not easy, it's difficult, and it encapsulates a lot of history. And Yet, Father, you recorded it for us to understand and for us to have hope in you that you do superintend all things. Oh, Father, remind us of that rich truth again and again and again and again. Help us to live for you in a world that hates you. Help us to be bold for you in a world that would rather see us take a seat. And Father, help these truths that we have imbibed and embraced to be the thing that shapes us more than anything else. It is through Christ we pray. Amen.